welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, I've been trying to be a little bit more intentional over the last few weeks with just keeping up with the news. And so I've actually uh, downloaded a couple news apps onto my phone and I'm trying to keep up with uh, the current events. But I got to be honest, I'm already starting to regret my decision. Here's just a few examples and they're real examples of some of the headlines that I've read just over the last couple weeks. You ready for them? Stocks fall as Omicron fuels more volatility. Confusion abounds as Ottawa introduces new pandemic travel measures with few details. Canadians, other foreigners, will need COVID-19 tests a day before flights to U.S. Rising COVID cases may temper holiday expectations. And friends, it's not all about COVID, so don't worry. There's other stuff going on in the world, too. You ready for a couple other headlines? Priced out of the housing market for first-time house buyers, it's about to get worse. And hydro rate hikes, widespread toll roads, free transit, part of Toronto's aggressive plan for fighting climate change. (laughs) Like I said, I'm already starting to regret this stuff. What about you, though? When you hear headlines like these, when you read stuff like this in the newspaper or hear it on the news... Like, what's your first reaction? What are some of the emotions that come up in you? Is it frustration when you read stuff like this? Like, with the decision makers and the decisions that they're making, they're causing trouble for everyone, right? Is it exasperation? Like, how many times have we said in the last year and a half, like, are you serious? Is this happening again? (laughs) Like, do you just throw your hands up in the air? And it's like, oh man, we just want to be done with this, right? One more decision, one more thing, one more order from on high. And it's like, here we go again, right? Maybe for some of us, it's just numbness. I've heard lots of people say, I've been one of them over the last, over the last year, year and a half. You know what? I just can't listen to one more announcement. (laughs) I don't even want to think about this stuff anymore. Well, friends, whether it's any of these feelings or maybe some other feelings that headlines like this make you feel, my guess is that one of the feelings that doesn't come up for you is joy, right? And here we are in the Advent season, and we're doing this series here at church that is talking about, of all things, go figure, joy. And really, one of the reasons why we're talking about this, why we're talking about why joy matters so much is because, man, isn't joy something we all need a little bit more of in a time like this? I was reading an article, because I'm keeping up with the news, right? I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, not too long ago, and it was actually talking about COVID anxiety and the wide range of mental health challenges that have been facing us because of the pandemic. Here's what it said. Get this. Said a new global study published in The Lancet examines 48 data sources in an attempt to quantify the toll that the pandemic has had on our mental health. The authors report a worldwide increase of more than 129 million cases of major depression and anxiety disorders compared with pre-pandemic figures. They attribute this to the combined effects of the spread of the virus, lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, decreased public transport, school and business closures, and decreased social interactions, among other factors too. Friends, we are living in a season 
where it feels like there are so many things competing and piling on top of each other that have the ability to rob us of joy, aren't we? And I'm not just talking about kind of difficult things in general. All of us go through difficult, uh, difficult things at different times. And I know some of you are going through extremely difficult things right now. But in particular, one of the things that's been on my mind lately is how at times, this isn't just difficult things in general. This is at times other people and other people's decisions, the decisions of decision makers, when those things can actually make life difficult, make life hard for us. I think that's the kind of feeling that all of us in different ways and shapes and forms have been experiencing over the last year and a half, haven't we? We've experienced this through our government, right? Our government's been making all kinds of, here's the word, unprecedented decisions over the last year and a half, right? Some of them you may have felt good about, you supported, others have been baffling, haven't they? Um, We've all been impacted that in one way, shape, or form. Health experts are making decisions and they're recommending all kinds of things that impact us. Our workplaces and our jobs and our bosses, they're making decisions, right? About who's eligible to work or who can't work anymore. About what kind of or where you need to work, right? Whether it's at the office or at home or some combination of the two. About what you need to do when you come to work or what protocols you need to follow. All kinds of decisions are being made on that level that impact our day-to-day jobs. Schools have been making decisions that have impacted us, haven't we? Any, any of you who are parents with kids, school-age kids, I, I would bet that most of you have had the thought at least once of the last week or two, like, hmm, are we going to, we going to get through the winter without one more stay at home order where the, our kids are going to have to do some more uh, online learning from home? Even in our families, right? Like the last year and a half, it has impacted some of our family dynamics dramatically, right? Some of us have had family members that think very differently about all of this stuff than we do. They have very different opinions and maybe they've even made very different decisions that have had an impact on you. I know that it has made some of us actually feel like we've been put in an awkward or maybe even an unfair position because of the opinions or decisions of some of our family members. And it's made some of our family relationships um, more tense. Now, with all that said, please hear me on this. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. I'm not trying to start a debate between you. I'm certainly not trying to speak to people on one side of this or the other or whatever. There's more than two sides. There's all kinds of sides to this. This is complex, right? I'm simply trying to put a finger on some dynamic that I think all of us have experienced in multiple ways, certainly over the last year and a half, but it's not limited to this pandemic or any other time in history. This dynamic works out in all kinds of ways in our lives. What do we do? When other people, and particularly people in power, what do we do when other people make decisions that make life difficult for us? Because the truth is, friends, this is one of the many things in this life that can just rob us of joy. When this kind of thing happens, it can feel confusing, it can feel frustrating, it can feel exhausting. Because we have to be the ones that navigate through all of the consequences and impacts of somebody else's decision. And it can make us feel powerless, even hopeless at times. It can make us feel like we're being tossed and turned back and forth around, all based on the the decisions of other people who have more say in the matter than we do. (laughs) Well, friends, believe it or not, (laughs) the Christmas story 
actually has a lot more to say about this dynamic than we might think at first glance. So let's take a minute and just listen to one of the accounts of Jesus' birth that actually speaks into this for us. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Friends, this is a story that has power dynamics and power plays and power holders that are laced all the way through it. And we're just getting a glimpse of that in this short passage that was just read for us. Because the story of Jesus' birth is a story where Mary and Joseph and even Jesus himself, they are literally being tossed back and forth and all over the place because of the decisions of other people. So I want to look at just a couple of the examples that are in this passage itself that tell us, that show us how the decisions of other people actually made life incredibly difficult for Mary and Joseph and even Jesus. Let's start. First, there was the decision of Rome, right? The story tells us about Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor and how he issued this decree that a censor, or a censor, a census should be taken over all of Rome, right? Now for us, if we hear about a census, that's not really any big deal. We get a card in the mail. We look over it. We make sure our address is right. Our name's spelled correctly. We fill it out. We put it back in the mail. We're done, right? That was nothing like this back for Mary and Joseph. Here's what a Roman census meant if it got issued. It meant that everyone across the entire Roman Empire had to travel to the town of their ancestral heritage. For many, it would be their hometown, but one where their ancestors came from. And they had to register themselves with the government. So this is how Rome kept track of every single person in their entire empire. They would know your name. They would know where you lived. They, will, they would know who all of your family members were, even extended family, because you all had to go back to your ancestral town, right? They knew where to go if you got out of line. That's why they took a census. And it didn't matter how far you had to travel in order to go to the town where you had to register. Rome didn't care about that. And so for many people, it meant they had to stop their work. So now they weren't making income over the time where they had to register. It, may, it meant that they had to make sure they had enough provisions and enough money to be able to make this journey. It now meant that they were taking a risk on the road. What if they got injured? What if they got robbed? What if the way there was dangerous? All kinds of things could happen. And when you finally got to the place where you needed to register, it wasn't just so you could register. It was so you could be taxed. And historians tell us that tax in those days was not like our tax. Some of us feel like we're being taxed more than we should, but these people were being taxed 80 to 90% of their income, which was already meager for many people. And it wasn't going towards school or healthcare or things that would be good for society and all the people at large. No, this was going largely to pay for Rome's armies and Rome's roads. So they could build more roads so that their armies could take over more territory and conquer more land. So a census was Rome's way, not only of asserting their own power over the people, but then using those people to actually expand their power to even regions beyond. <laughs> 
And so here are Mary and Joseph. Mary is late in her pregnancy and she's having to travel from Nazareth over a hundred kilometers south, which was literally a journey that was entirely uphill for them to register for this census. Talk about decisions from other people that make life difficult for us. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph must have been thinking? Like, how are we going to get there? Mary, she's pregnant. She's ready to burst. How are you even going to do this? How are we going to afford this? Like, I've got to stop working. And then I've got to pay taxes. Like, we're just starting out, right? Mary, this is a hundred kilometer journey. Are you sure you're going to be able to do this? Riding on a donkey, whether she did or not, that wouldn't have been any easier, friends. <laughs> what do we do if Mary goes into labor on the road? Like, how are we going to handle that? The decisions of a power holder that would have made life incredibly difficult for Mary and Joseph, and I'm sure many, many others. <laughs> well, it wasn't just decisions from on high that made uh, life difficult for Mary and Joseph. It was actually decisions from people who were quite close to them too, from their own family. Here's what the account says. It says, when Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, it goes on to say, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals because it says there was no guest room available for them. Now, some of the older translations or maybe translations that you're familiar with often say there was no room for them in the inn, right? And this often for many of us kind of conjures up these images of Mary and Joseph knocking on all the hotels and inns and taverns looking for a place to stay. But because Bethlehem was so packed up because of the census, there was no room for them. But then maybe some kind innkeeper let them hang out in the barn and that's where they gave birth, right? Well, no, I actually, this translation, there's no guest room avail available for them is a more accurate uh, translation. Here's what it's referring to. It's this idea that many homes in that time were built actually with a guest room. Many of them would be on the upper level of the house. It would often have been the entire upper level. And it's where if they were having friends or family or extended family to come over for a big meal or a time together, this is where they would host that. <clears throat> or if they had friends or relatives staying for a night or a few nights, this is where their friends or, or relatives would stay in the guest room. <clears throat> And like I said, it was often an upper level in a home. Some homes were built with another room at the front or a separate building altogether at the front, which would have been the guest room. And this is where the guests would stay and sleep. Like I said, often those would have been extended family. Well, speaking of extended family, <clears throat> when there's a statement like this, there's no guest room available for them. It's actually put there, I think, intentionally to kind of cause us pause for a moment. Because after all, think about it. Bethlehem was the ancestral town, essentially the hometown of both Mary and Joseph, both of them. Both of them likely had relatives living in the town. <clears throat> and more than that, they were both from Nazareth. So both of them almost definitely had relatives that would have been traveling from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem to register for this census as well. <clears throat> but neither, but the account actually speaks nothing about any relatives. There's no mention of any relatives traveling with Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It seems to indicate that they were alone. There's no mention of any relatives housing them. In fact, quite the opposite. There was no room in the guest room. Now, what would have had to, had to have been going on for people to refuse a young couple with a, a young woman who's ready to burst with pregnancy? 
Why would they refuse that? Well, many of you are aware of this, right? Mary, everyone knew, and Joseph certainly knew, but all of his relatives knew too, that Mary, though she was pregnant, she was not pregnant with Joseph's child. And in this time and culture, that would have been a shameful thing. And so for anyone in Mary and Joseph's family to give them hospitality, it would have said they approve. They would have been associating themselves with the shame that they brought, that they believed Mary had brought upon herself. And so they chose to reject them even though Mary was pregnant and ready to give birth. <clears throat> now, apparently, archaeology actually tells us that many homes, even in Bethlehem, were actually built on top of caves. And so the cave would have been at the back of the house where, and this is where the animals would have stayed um, uh, at night to stay warm and safe and whatever, um, and that kind of a thing. And this was likely the scenario or the kind of place where Mary gave birth to Jesus, probably not in a barn so much as a backdoor cave. And it's actually even referred to by one of the earliest writers, one of the earliest Christian writers. His name was Justin Martyr. He lived in the second century. And he actually referred to the fact that Jesus was born in a cave. And so it's possible, it's possible that one of Mary and Joseph's family members allowed them um, not in the house, but okay, fine, we'll let you stay in the cave and you can be back there with the animals and whatever. So, but that was as much help as they were willing to give. Not even so much as a warm blanket to wrap their child in. Mary and Joseph's family could have decided to help. They probably should have decided to help, but instead they chose to turn their backs on them and to have Mary give birth to a baby in the midst of the barn animals. And so because of more decisions like this, not just from people up on high, but even people close to them, now Mary and Joseph are forced into one more difficult situation, one more set of decisions that they never wanted to make in the first place. Now, as you listen to these examples, right? Sure, they happened a long time ago in a place far away from us, in a setting, in a culture that's very different from ours. But maybe, maybe these situations are not so unrelatable after all, right? Certainly in the last year and a half, I think there's all kinds of ways we can relate to them. But even apart from that, there's no question that all of us have had experiences in different ways and shapes and forms where we have had to take the hit because of the decision of someone else. Some of us have experienced that hit in our finances. Some of us have experienced it in our jobs, or maybe we've lost a job or we've missed out on a job opportunity because of somebody else's bad decision. Some of us have had relationships, either a new tensions brought into our relationships or relationships broken or destroyed altogether. Why? Because of the bad decisions of someone else. Speaking of relationships, right? I think a lot of us can uh, uh, relate to this in terms of some of our family dynamics as well, at least in some way, where someone in our family, where they could have made a certain decision, maybe even they should have made a certain decision. And because they didn't, because they decided what they decided, it's meant that you've had to take on some consequences that you never signed up for. And maybe it's ruined some of your own family relationships. Not just that, but think about like unjust decisions, right? And maybe this is one that fewer of us can honestly relate to, but I know that some of you can, where you have experienced true injustice because of the decisions of other people in power, where you have experienced very real oppression and very real violence, where you yourself have actually been displaced. You've had to learn, you've had to flee and run and live somewhere else and I know it's marked you and it's changed, obviously, the, the direction and the shape of your life forever. 
We've all experienced some of these dynamics. It's crazy that all of these experiences were part of the very first Christmas. Frustration, anger, hopelessness, rejection, violence, displacement, all because of the decisions of other people, some distant, some close, but decisions of other people who had more say in the matter than they did. (laughs) We're doing a series called Joy, actually. (laughs) Like, where's the joy in this? But friends, what I love about this story and this whole account that's written for us in the biographies of Jesus around his birth is that these are not the only things that these stories are telling us. They're actually telling us that even in the midst of these decisions, the decisions of Rome and the decisions of Mary and Joseph's own family, you know what? God was making some decisions too (laughs) because God's good plans can't be stopped, not even by the bad decisions of others. Let's take a look at these again and see what he might have been doing even through these things. The census, right? This was a tool that Rome used to advance their own power and to keep the people powerless. But somehow God actually used this census to direct Mary and Joseph to the exact place where they were supposed to be. Why? Because the prophets had actually written about this hundreds of years before. They promised that God would one day send a new king, a savior, a Messiah, someone who would come to rescue the people and bring freedom for them all. And there would be a number of signs that would all line up that would tell us and confirm for us that yes, this is the one who God has sent. One of those signs they promised would be the fact that this new king would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, that very prophecy is one of the reasons why Herod targeted Bethlehem um, to, uh, uh, to kill all the newborn babies, all the babies under two, um, a little later on in a different passage that we didn't have read for us today. And sure, I am sure that God could have used a different way uh, to get Mary and Joseph to come to Bethlehem. He w- worked in other ways uh, all through this story of Jesus' birth. He showed up to people in dreams. He spoke to, uh, to Mary and Joseph. He sent an angel. He used all these kinds of miraculous ways. But this is one of the things I love about this. In a sense, he's doing something incredible. He's orchestrating somehow events to work out in a way to get Mary and Joseph to the place where they needed to be. But he's doing it through such an ordinary thing, through a census through a government census. This is how God is actually fulfilling prophecy. It's this, on the one hand, it's this tool of oppression, but on the other hand, God is using it to actually fulfill his promises. I love it. Somehow he was using it to do a miracle. It's incredible. Rome's plans were not going to stop God's plans. What about the family decisions, right? There could not have been a more heartbreaking place for a mother to give birth to her very first child than literally in the back, than literally in a back door hole in the ground. This is where Jesus was born. It was where the animals were kept. And because of that, there couldn't have been a more clear message that Mary and Joseph's family were sending to them. You are not wanted. We want nothing to do with you. We're not even going to give you a warm blanket to wrap your child in. You've brought shame on the family. And so that means we're going to treat you like nothing more than the animals out back. But friends, we need to think about this image a little bit deeper. Jesus, wrapped in strips of cloth, placed in a cave. Does that that bring to mind any other uh, images from Jesus' life for you? (laughs) If it doesn't, listen 
to how Matthew later on in the account of Jesus' life describes what happened after he was crucified. Here's what Matthew writes. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. You see, friends, Mary and Joseph were experiencing some of the very, and Jesus himself were experiencing some of the very same things, the moment of his birth as Jesus would later experience the moment of his death because he would one day be rejected. He would one day be abandoned, essentially kicked to the curb and left to die. And then after his body was taken down from the cross, this is what it says. It literally says he was wrapped in a linen cloth and he was placed in a cave tomb. This is crazy. This is mind blowing. It's like right from the get go of Jesus' life, we are being painted a picture about his death, which we all know was no ordinary death, right? This was actually the reason that Jesus came into the world, certainly to live, but not just to live, not just to do incredible miracles and to heal people and to speak transforming truth into the world, to give us a whole new way to to live, but then to die and to rise again. And through that, He would conquer all of the sin and the evil and the corruption and the rejection that makes these kinds of situations happen in the first place. See, the power holders in Mary and Joseph's family, they chose to make decisions that made life incredibly difficult for them. But somehow, even in the midst of that, God was making decisions too. (laughs) To give us a picture of his rescue plan for the world. This is the very reason why Jesus came into the world, that he himself would be rejected and abandoned and he would be killed because of the hatred and sin of others. And he would give up his life for us. Friends, I honestly don't believe these details would have made it into the account unless Mary had one day after Jesus had died and risen again, she had made those connections herself. And she was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. I need to tell someone else. I am certain she told other followers of Jesus and they wrote it down because this was incredible. So that we could see that even in the bad decisions, the brutal decisions of people far away and people near to Mary and Joseph, even at the time of Jesus' birth, God was making decisions too. He was painting a picture of his rescue plan for the world. I love that. (laughs) Friends, over and over again, because of the decisions of other people, Mary and Joseph were forced into situations that they didn't want to be in. They were forced to have to make decisions that they didn't want to make. But somehow in all of this, God was making decisions too. He was setting the table to work out his act of power through the person and life of Jesus in a way that none of the power holders of their day or ours could stop. And so friends, Man, before we go any further, I think we need to stop. We need to stop and sing and worship and remember and know who this God is that is able, even in the darkest night, to bring about beautiful things. This was a holy night. We need to sing that. Oh, holy night, the 
stars are brightly shining It is the night of our dear Savior's birth All in the world It's in an error pining Till he appeared And the soul felt its worth So what does all of this mean for us when we think back and look over the stories that Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the experience that they had to actually walk through because of the decisions of other people who were over their lives? 
like, like I said before, I think there are all kinds of ways that we can relate to this because there are all kinds of ways that we are more aware than ever about how the decisions of other people are impacting our lives, right? And there is certainly a place for us as Jesus followers to be active in those conversations and to be making use of the platforms that we have available to us to speak into these issues and even to work and to fight against injustice happening locally and globally. But... <laughs> Before we even get to those things, which are all good things, I believe that one of the underlying questions we need to continue to wrestle with as followers of Jesus is like when other people are making those kinds of decisions that make life difficult for us and others, um, they can easily move us into places of anger and frustration and exhaustion and hopelessness. But how do we move, even as we engage in these issues, how do we move from doing it out of a place of anger and frustration and exhaustion to a place of trust, of confidence, of hope, (laughs) Like, how do we learn to see and to trust that God's good plans are actually still continuing to work themselves out even in the midst of other people's bad decisions? I don't know how that happens. I'm not saying God makes people make bad decisions. I'm not even saying God chooses that they would or preordains or whatever, however that works. I don't know how all of that works. It's a mystery, but somehow, how do we put ourselves in a position to see that God's good plans are even working out somehow in the midst of other people's bad decisions? (laughs) Well, if nothing else, friends, I think these stories give us at least a couple ideas of how we can do that. One of the things these these incredible stories tell us is we need to be people that are continuing to learn to lift our eyes up. (laughs) We need to learn to continue to cultivate in our lives a vision of who is really on the throne, like a vision of who is really in control, who is really in charge, even higher than the positions of power of government or family or work or school or wherever. There is ultimately one who is on the throne, overseeing all things and working out his decisions, even in the bad decisions of other people around us, even in the midst of our own bad decisions. (laughs) We need to look around with new eyes, (laughs) that tell us that just because other people have made decisions that have made life difficult for us, it doesn't mean that those decisions have stopped God from making decisions of his own. And friends, the beautiful thing about that is that God, the one who is on the throne, is not a decision maker like Caesar or Herod or Mary and Joseph's family or you or me. He is good. He is patient. He's kind. He's full of compassion. He's just. He's powerful. He's holy. This is the one who is on the throne, whose decisions are always wise and always right. And there is stuff There are all kinds of decisions that he is making all of the time that relate to things that are so much bigger than the the details of our lives. 
And he is not surprised or taken off guard in the ways that we are when others make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with or that, that inconvenience us or that make our lives difficult. He is not inconvenienced by those things and his plans certainly are not interrupted. And so friends, we need to learn to cultivate a vision that is continuing to lift our eyes up to see who's really on the throne before we react with anger, with frustration, with vengeance, with fear to the decisions of other people. Like I believe that these stories actually need to give us, and stories like this, they need to give us a whole new creative vision, imagination for how God might even want to work in the world, for the things that he might even want to do or be doing in the midst of actually even decisions of other people around us, even our own decisions that might make life difficult for us and for others. The things that don't sit well of us, well with us, the things that irk us when other people make those decisions or whatever. What is God doing? Oh God, would you give me a new vision to see what you're doing? Even in the midst of these things, (laughs) we need to lift up our eyes. And as we do, (laughs) these stories tell us we need to bow down our heads. We need to pray. We need to learn to be people of prayer. Because friends, this is one of the things that we can do as people of faith that no one else in the world is doing. Most of our decision makers are not praying on a regular basis. They're not lifting their eyes up to the throne, but we can. This is actually one of the primary ways that we gain access to the ultimate decision maker, the one who is above all decision makers, right? We don't need the beautiful thing about prayer is it means we don't need to have all the decisions figured out. (laughs) We don't need to have all the right answers. We can actually just bring the problems. (laughs) We can bring our loss and our confusion and our pain and our anger and our frustration and our exhaustion. We can bring all of these things to the, to the one who is on the throne and we can set them at his feet. And we can remind God who he is because you know what? That's one of the things that so many people through the pages of the Bible used to do. They would cry out to God and they say, don't you forget who you are. You're the one who's in charge. These aren't my problems. These are your problems. You got to be the one to deal with them because they're too big, frankly, for me. And so what I love about this is that even our simple prayers, even our prayers of confusion and anger and exhaustion, they can find a place in the big and beautiful context of God's plans for the world. (laughs) We need to lift our eyes up and we need to bow our heads down where we can cry out to God and say, God, would you make perfect decisions even in the midst of the very imperfect and broken decisions that I make, that my family and friends make, and that people in power make? Would you make decisions that somehow supersede all of these other decisions? Friends, one of the ways we do this as a church community is actually some, in, a, in a way that's coming up in just a few weeks. It's through our week of prayer. This has been an annual tradition as part of our church family for many, many years now. And where we take the first full week of the new year, this year it's happening from January 2 to 6, when every night for five nights in a row, we come together to do just this, to lift our eyes up and to ask God to give us a vision of who he is and what he's doing and what he wants to do in our midst and all around the world and to bow our heads down and to pray and to seek his face and to cry out and to say, oh God, would you make your good plans work even through the broken decisions and the brokenness around us? 
Would you do these things? And so I want to take this opportunity now. Don't miss out on that opportunity. We need these things to help us learn how to cultivate this vision for what God is doing and to learn to pray and to cry out to him to do even more. So put it in your calendar. Even take a minute right now. Take out your phone or whatever. Put it in your calendar. January 2 to 6 is going to be our week of prayer. We're going to lift our eyes up. We're going to bow our heads down. Friends, I just so believe that these are two postures And I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to me too. We need to become more familiar with these postures, particularly in the moment of history that we are in now, to learn to lift our heads up and to see these greater things and bigger things that God is doing, even in the midst of the broken decisions that are all around us. And to learn to bow our heads down and cry out to the ultimate decision maker. Ask him to work out his perfect plans. And as we do, as we learn to become familiar in these postures, may they free us to become people who truly, genuinely live with a real experience of joy. Because we're not just experiencing, because we might be people that don't just experience the broken decisions of ourselves and others others around us, but that we might somehow live in the midst of this vision, this greater vision of what God is doing. It is a vision of joy and it can give us joy day after day after day, even in the midst of the broken plans of ourselves and of others.